Yep. Hi, Lisa. Hey, hey Lisa. how's it going? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. Sure thing. What is the difference between the blue copy and the red copy of Noble Purpose? Oh, they're different. They're actually different books. They are. I can't tell. Okay. One is selling with Noble Purpose and one's leading with Noble Purpose. Oh, I didn't know about the leading with Noble Purpose. Yeah. No offense, but I think I like that one better already. <laughs> well, we can talk about whatever you want. It's your show. That's hilarious. Uh, um, uh, I will tell you the selling one is a little more differentiated. Because a lot is. of people talk about purpose and leadership, and not that many people talk about it in sales. That's true. That's very true. I'll give you that. <laughs> I can't believe I have to talk to two people from Georgia at the same time. It's all right. Where'd you come from, Georgia? Yes, I I grew up in Macon. Oh my! Where do you live now? California. Oh, okay. Well, I grew up in Washington D.C. So. Okay. So, uh, where are where are you in the Are you in the Atlanta um, area? I'm outside Atlanta. Are you familiar with Lake Oconee? Uh huh. That's yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I I went to I went to summer camp in North Georgia. So I'm oh, okay. very familiar with Oconee. And then there's the isn't there the Oconee River for whitewater rafting, if mm -hmm. I remember. So I went yeah. down that, and that's the one where they pull all the water out to put yeah. in the dam overnight, right? Um, so yeah, very familiar. Lake Oconee is actually out on the um, east side of Atlanta. Okay, so it's that's different. Near Augusta, okay. it's where um, Reynolds Golf Course. If you're a big golfer, they have a golf course there. I actually lived in Macon for two years of my youth. My parents had some um, friends in Macon and some business acquaintances. And my dad went down to be the vice president of the People's Bank in Macon, Georgia. Remember the People's Bank. In the um, in like 1969, 1970, and I think that's the two years in Macon is I think when my parents discovered they were liberals. <laughs> Not anymore. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. No. No, no, no. There's, there's a Baptist church on every corner, and if yeah. there's not one on one side, there's one on the other. That's about yeah, all. They moved down to Macon, and my mom, my mom was like a world-traveled, educated woman in 1970 in Macon, Georgia, and she said, "I don't think so, honey. We got to go back to Washington." <laughs> uh, that's funny. She was, yeah. Come on, Richard. Where's yours? I, I don't ha I don't read books. You know that. Well, and we just launched a new version of it. But oh, cool. So you got the gist. Absolutely. Right. Let's go. We have, we have no, we don't do these shows scripted at all. As we, right. we just wing it, have a conversation, take the conversation, whatever direction, you know, it kind of goes. Um, if there's something that's off limits, like we don't want to talk about, I don't know, politics or COVID or something like that, let us know and we'll stay away from it. If there's something you specifically do want to talk about, um, you know, let us know and we'll find a way to weave that in. And um, at the very end of the call, we always say, hey, how can we be helpful to you? Is there, you know, any questions you want to ask us or is there, uh, you know, some cause that you're behind that you want to shout out or something like that? So just keep that in the back of your, back of your mind. Okay, perfect. And so nothing is off limits. I think the thing that to me would be the most interesting is like this moment in time that we're in, in business. Is very, yes. 
Yeah, we're, we're having a lot of those conversations. And I think to yeah. your noble purpose of sales or leadership, I think will it'll be a good place to, to get to. Um, but with, with that being said, um, I think we're ready. You ready, Scott? How long do you want to go for? About 45 -ish minutes. 45 minutes, so. Got it. I have a hard stop at 5 Central. I got to take my kid to practice, so. Okay. All right. Scott, you going to go for it? Because I'm trying to turn off my dingers. Oh. oh. You want me to do the intro? Is that what you're saying? Yes. And okay. mention our sponsors. So. Oh, yeah. This is the first one with... Uh... See how professional we are, Lisa? I'm impressed. Yeah. It's shocking that people listen to our show at all. But I think, I think, our, I think how ridiculously, ridiculous we are is part of the appeal, apparently. I agree with you. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm Scott Lease here with my good friend, Richard Harris. And we are joined today by one of my favorite authors who I just found out has another book and another edition of her super famous book, Selling with Noble Purpose, as well as Leading with Noble Purpose. Lisa, how do I say this, Lisa? McLeod? McLeod. McLeod. I got it. I got it. I did it. We are uh, super excited to talk to you today about kind of the state of business and selling in this bizarro world that we're in. But uh, real quick, want to give a shout out to our sponsors of the show for the month of September. Uh, we are sponsored this month for the first time by gong.io. Super excited to be partnered with them. If you have a team and you're looking for sales coaching help, uh, check out their, their software, software and their platform. We're big fans of theirs. And Lead411, who's been a sponsor of ours for a few months now, if you're looking for intent data, uh, they're the place to go. Check them out, lead411.com. So without further ado, Lisa, thanks for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. So I, I was teasing you earlier and Richard a little bit that I feel like I'm always outnumbered. I'm either talking to two people who went to U of A or I'm talking to two people who are from Georgia. Like I can't get away from this dynamic where I'm outnumbered, Richard. So that's, I need all the help I can get, Scott. That's, that's why. So you're, you're a tough nut to crack. So, you know, I got, I got to do my best and bring my A game. And if I can't, well, Scott, as you know, I like to bring my B plus game because that's good enough for you. And then I bring others to help bring the A game. B plus A. That's my job. I got to bring the A game. Got it. Yeah. Memo to self. I'm on it. Yeah. All right, Lisa, tell everybody uh, what you do and what you've been doing in your background, like where your sales expertise is, so people have some context for uh, So about 10 years ago, I noticed something. This will best describe both who I am and the work that I do. About 10 years ago, um, I was doing a study with a client. We were assessing their sales team. And we were trying to identify what made the top performers the top performers. Because you've been in sales any amount of time, you know the difference between a poor performer and a good performer, super easy to spot. We know the difference. But what about that rarefied air at the top? What differentiates those performers? And so uh, I'm a sales consultant. I'm a former VP of sales myself. And my team and I were doing a study. And what we identified was that the mental talk track of these top performers was completely different. 
they were what we came to call noble purpose sellers who truly wanted to make a difference in the lives of their customers. And the talk track wasn't revealed in the course of daily operations, but they had a very different true north. And so through a lot of study, we were able to identify what made them these top performers with this different true north and how other people could become that. And so that's the work that we do. It's really around sales transformation, but it starts in the hearts and minds of the salespeople. Can you dive into a little bit more of, of like your specific definition of noble purpose? What, what, what does that mean to you? So when we work with organizations, the default of most sales organizations, if you ask a salesperson, what's the purpose of your job or why are you here? They'll say, I'm here to close it. I'm here to win deals. That's my purpose. And that sounds good in theory. And you will have a decent business better than showing up and saying, I just want to collect my paycheck. I don't care about anything. You know, you'll, you'll be a pretty good organization if you're clear about your financial targets. But what we discovered was these noble purpose sellers have a purpose bigger than money. And we've been able to translate that organizationally. So I'll give you an example. We work with a bank and their what we call noble sales purpose is we fuel prosperity. So when a salesperson goes into a call, they're not thinking about, how can I get this loan? How can I close this deal? They're thinking, what does prosperity mean for this client? How can I help them with that? It totally reorients the organization. And that company had a 40% increase in earnings as a result. And the, the reason that this is so important is it's counterintuitive. It's much like if I say, if I went into all my relationships hoping that people would love me, I'm gonna be this graspy, needy person. But if I go into my relationships wanting other people to feel loved, I'm gonna create better relationships. The same thing happens in sales. You mean they don't all love me? Scott, I'm well, shocked. Sure do for you. <laughs> Maybe now, Richard, because you're so evolved. Lisa, <laughs> let me ask you a question. And I, it just is a little, little pushback question. Okay. What would you say then to those people who are out there listening, thinking, well, I'm a top producer and have been for a long time, but I, have, I don't have this noble purpose thought. And I've, I've been you know, kind of selfish, whatever. I don't care so much about the customer. Those people exist. So what would you say to, to them? So I would say a couple of things. First of all, the research tells us they exist in very small numbers people who have sustained top performance, who think I care about myself, I'm the money guy. These customers, I don't care about them. The numbers tell us that that's not sustainable. The other thing that we've discovered is people tend to create a false dichotomy. Well, I care about the money. A lot of people, including me, went into sales because we care about the money. But over time, we evolved to care about the customers. So that's the other thing I would say. If in fact, they are that person who says, I only care about the money. What I would say is in the current environment, I hope you saved a lot of it, that money that you made. Because <laughs> customers are gonna get your number real fast, my friend. <laughs> and, and, and there's this you know, little thing called reputation and the internet and you know, customer retention. Yep. It, yeah, it's different. not a sustainable model. Yeah, different world now. Things are evolving from yeah. That. Yeah, yeah and, and I don't want to minimize the importance of money. 
you know, you need to be able to generate revenue. You need to be able to provide for your family. It's not a sin to want a nice lifestyle for yourself. What we know is if you go into sales calls thinking, I got to close this deal, I got to close this deal, you will give off that vibe and it will be very transactional. But if you go into sales calls thinking, I need to create a win for the customer, you'll be differentiated. And there's a lot of things that organizations can do to make it that second mindset. Does that mean that that salesperson has to really love what they sell? Right. Like there's, you know, I sold educational software for years, um, probably old enough to sell it when Scott was in school and um, responsible for his education. But is but there was something noble about that. There was something altruistic of like I'm selling to the K-12 market. I'm, I am teaching kids how to read. I am teaching them how to type or math or those things. Do you have does the rep have to have that level of passion for what the product or service is in order to have that nobility or can they fake it till they make it kind of thing? <laughs> so the short answer is they don't have to have that passion for the product, but we want to cultivate that passion for the impact. So my guys that sell for a bank, I mean, come on, a bank's kind of a bank, a bank, you know, there's not much difference. What they need to have is passion for the impact they can have on customers. We work with all kinds of people that sell things that aren't particularly sexy. I mean, we work with a concrete company, okay? That is like one of the least sexy things around. But the whole world is built on concrete. You can't live your life without it. And so what we find when you talked about, you said something important there, Richard, about fake it till you make it. What we find is that when the leadership is clear, not about, hey, we got the sexiest product in the world, but here's how our solution positively impacts customers. When the leadership can fuel the belief system of the team with stories like that, that fake it till you make it person becomes what we call a TB. And a TB is a true believer. <laughs> and that's what you want. You want a tribe of those true believers. Yeah, there's, there's something, there's also something hypnotic about the way you say all this stuff, Lisa. I mean, you've been doing it a while. It's very... Um you're good. Like, it's okay. nice. Like I'm sitting here absorbing it. I'm a PB. What can I say? <laughs> I want to go way back. You know, were you always competitive growing up? Were you, you know, always um, the kid in the neighborhood who had a lemonade stand or did any of those kinds of things? Oh yeah. So what it's taken me, I'm going to confess I'm over 50. And it's taken me the half of a, what is that, half a century to bring these two sides of my life together. One is this fiercely competitive. I remember my first job, they were saying some sales contest. And I looked my boss in the eye and I said, you tell me it was a freaking toothpick was the prize. And I crushed these idiots over here. <laughs> I love this so, so much. So, oh, I got, I got to tell you a story about that, but I'll answer the question first. So this, what this finally did for me was I felt like there were these two competing forces in my soul, my whole life. And one is this super competitive. I want to win. I want to be the best. That's why I went into sales. And the other candidly is, you know, like, like I'm a mother, I'm a person who wants to do well in the world. And it's taken me the better part of my life to finally see that those two things were actually not in conflict. And then a lot of research ended up proving that was true. That those, those two sides, that fiercely competitive side and that want to do right, that when you can bring those together 
in an individual person or in an organization, you harness a power to be reckoned with. That's how you change your industry. That's how you win the market. That's how you create those TVs. Are you willing to go there and tell us, you know, these are the two things I tried to keep separate. And you know what, here's what happened when I allowed them to merge. Is there, mm -hmm. is there something that's happened in your life where you were like, yep, this is the right path forward. Yeah, there is. So I had that study that I mentioned, but that was the intellectual understanding. I had to get the true emotional understanding and it happened a decade ago. So I'll tell you when you don't need the money, it's really easy to be all nicey nice and say, I want to do the right thing. But when you're broke, it's a lot harder. And 10 years ago, I was broke. So it was during the recession and my husband um, had a small manufacturing business that went belly up. I say my husband, it was my husband and I, because if you're married, you know, that's you too. And so I had my nicey nice little life and I was speaking and consulting, but to be candid, I wasn't desperate for money. I liked money, but I wasn't desperate. Well, you take a bankruptcy and you have two kids that are about to go into college, you get pretty damn desperate for money. And I remember I'd had this intellectual understanding because I had just completed that sales study. And so I knew if I go out there, you know, I'm a good salesperson, I can sell consulting services and I can be aggressive right in there with the rest of them. And I thought I'm gonna have some level of success, but is that who I wanna be? Do I, is that who I wanna become? This transactional money-driven person is that, do I want my whole life organized around money? I thought, no, and here I have evidence that this doesn't work in a big way anyway. It's only gonna give you a moderate level of success and it's not gonna be lasting. So that for me was the moment when I had to say, get serious about this. Well, what did you change? What, mm -hmm. do you, what, what kind of, aside from the mindset, mm -hmm. right? What kind of things did you start doing differently, saying differently, mm -hmm. you know, as, as you recall it? Yeah, so the mindset is the key, but then I'll tell you how that translates out. So for me, we decided that our purpose as a consulting firm was help leaders drive revenue, do work that makes them proud. Those two things together, the money and the meaning. And so what I started doing was I started even my discovery calls became different. So normally I would ask about, you know, how's your sales team performing? How do you want them to perform differently? I started asking about like, what impact would that have on you personally? How do you think your customers are experiencing the emotional tone of your sales team? How is your sales team experiencing their life? Like I had to kind of slow down a little bit and start asking those more robust, deeper questions. And through it, I learned a lot. I learned that a lot of people hate their jobs. Is one thing I learned. And so, so through that, I had to say, I'm gonna hold myself to this standard of I am going to help these people make more money and I'm also going to help people have a higher level of purpose and happiness and meaning and emotional engagement in their work and pride. And, and so I changed my own metrics and I wasn't, I wasn't perfect. I'll tell you that it took a while, but when you change your metric of success and it becomes this sort of dual focus, it changes the questions you ask. It changes the way you do your presentations, it changes everything. Did anybody give you a nudge in this particular direction or was this just kind of a light bulb moment for you? Um, I had a lot of nudges. And what I find, um, 
I can mention a couple of them. What I find is that when you start down the right path, it's like the universe turns around and goes, well, we've been waiting on you, girl. You know, here you go. And yeah. so we had some early success when I was speaking about this before I had written the book, Selling with Noble Purpose. I spoke about it at a couple of conferences and I had people like hold up their hand and go, and, and I wasn't, you know, I didn't have it all buttoned up back then. And I had people go, yeah, that thing you were talking about, can you talk to me more about that? And they were those kinds of people who had that same yearning. And so the like minds started coming. Um, I connected really fast with the publisher, a guy named Mark Levy, he's a thought leader expert, helped me write the book, counseled me on that. And it just, it just seemed to, like I said, once you start moving in the right direction, not that you don't encounter resistance, but you usually get some affirmations. I feel like the universe yeah. throws you a couple of freebies. What do you, um, what was your experience like writing book one and then writing book two? And, and what advice would you give people out there who are considering doing it? This is mostly a benefit for Richard, who I'm now trying to nudge to write a book himself. Well, so I would give a couple pieces of advice and I've written several books actually. Um, those weren't my first books, but I'll, but I'll tell you one piece of advice was a game changer. And I can tell the difference between two of my books, the book that I wrote for a select group of people. And by that, I mean, when I wrote selling with noble purpose, I took like seven VPs of sales, a couple mid-level managers, couple salespeople that I knew, and I wrote their names on my whiteboard. And I wrote that book for them. For, and I thought about writing it for them. And it made it so much better in some previous books earlier I had written because of what I wanted to say. Mm. And you're writing a book. It's obviously what you want to say. But I, but I would look at that, at that board, and I would say, and I still remember their names. I had little faces for them. And I still remember thinking, what would Steve Johnson think about this? What would Marva Baylor think about this? What would Stuart Bruce think about this? And those are all real life people. You can search them on LinkedIn. And I thought, how would they be receiving this? What would I tell them in a one-on-one -on -one conversation? And if you write with a visual of those people in mind, man, it'll change everything. That's great. And, and, and how now do you define success for, to, for a particular book? Is it based on the number of copies? Is it based on opportunities that it brings your way? Is it solely for you based on the impact that you find that it has had on others? Some amalgamation of the three or something I missed? It's how do you an amalgamation. So I'll tell you the, the thing at the core when you write a book, writing a book, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, is hard. And it's hard to write a good book. It's hard to get it published. And if you're doing it just because you think you're going to make a bunch of money, uh, go do something else. There's a lot easier ways to do it. That is definitely true. <laughs> yeah. It, and so for me, when I wrote, we have this new edition of Selling with Noble Purpose came out. And I, it's interesting you asked that question because I thought a lot about that. And of course, my ego says, I'm going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. I want to be on the Wall Street bestseller list. I mean, that's your ego talking. And she is a formidable creature to be reckoned with. So you got to let that go. But for me, I know that, that selling a lot of books actually is an indicator of how many people are going to have a different experience of going to work. And so selling a lot of books is only one indicator, 
but it is an indicator. The other indicator for me of success is when people say, this changed the way I sell. A bigger indicator for me are when we have companies say, our whole sales organization is transformed. And when they start citing numbers, and we've had some of these, where we doubled our revenue, our customer retention is off the grid, and our sales turnover is down. Because that tells me people are really enjoying their job. When we start having our clients win best place to work awards and their revenues going up, that tells me we're hitting those two metrics that we wanted to hit. People are experiencing their job in a great way and they're making more money. Yeah. And, and, and what do you do when you get this kind of feedback and you know that you're making impact? Like, what are you doing to create and develop a, you know, community or, or engage with this group of people that, you know, is your audience? How, how are you thinking about that right now? Because micro communities, all the rage right, you know, right now. Right. So I'm, I'm curious, how are you participating in this movement of the moment, if you will? Are you in my head? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, because um, I don't have a great answer, to be honest. Um, so what we've done is we've got something. We knew, you know, a book can change your life. A book has changed a lot of people's lives. If you want to sustain it, though, there's a reason people go to church every Sunday. There's a reason people go to Al-Anon meetings. There's a reason people go to CrossFit, you know, because they want to be part of that community. And they, and like I know, I'm not going to be able to sustain challenging habits without a community. I'm going to enjoy it more. So that is on our radar. What we're doing now is we actually created a mobile uh, platform. It's coming out um, in two weeks so that people will be able to um, experience some daily information, a change of habits, so that they can incorporate these ideas into the cadence of daily sales. And then our next step, once we get a certain number of users, is to, um, is to create community. I can tell you for now what I'm doing is I do a LinkedIn Live every Friday at 1.30, and we do a LinkedIn work on purpose newsletter that people can just go on LinkedIn and sign up for. So we're creating community in that way and building our list. Our next step is to have the people in the community interact with each other. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a, it's a huge opportunity for all of us right now who have been in this sales arena for a long time and you know, producing a lot of content, whether it's books or yeah. just, uh, LinkedIn content or other, other places. I know when Richard and I started surfing sales a couple of years ago, we were already thinking about kind of getting more, getting smaller, more intimate, the fostering this sense of experiential learning and community and getting away from the, you know, quarter million people in San Francisco at Dreamforce right. type of thing. Like, yeah. We don't need all that anymore, right? It's like, let's get smaller. Let's go. Let's go deeper with folks. So yeah, that's where our brain is right now for our business. So if someone listening to this right now is the expert in creating communities and wants to give us a shout out, I would tell you to talk to Scott. He's an expert at it. As much as he'll say no, he's very good at it. Whether you do it <laughs> offline or here, talk offline about that, Lisa. So. Um, so so let's talk about, you know, even a little bit more in present day, right? What are you seeing with, in the sales community with reps or managers and leaders 
as it relates to our current world situation. Uh, you know, we're in the middle of COVID, um, yeah. depending on yeah. your perspective. Um, and we're seeing companies having to make some tough decisions. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to leave it very vague at that point and just see where you take it. Well, there's two opposing forces happening right now. There are companies that really need revenue and they are pushing, pushing, pushing on their sales teams. Close it, close it, close it. And then we have a growing chorus of customers who are starting to question motive and who are saying, are you just here to close me? Or are you actually here to help me? And the reason that that's happening, it's obvious why the close it, close it, close it is happening, that pressure on the sellers. But the reason why the customer DNA has changed is for a couple of reasons. One, we've all gone through this existential crisis. If you've ever lost a parent or like I had a bankruptcy, uh, these kinds of things give you pause. These big life events give you pause and make you think, who am I? Why am I here? Who really cares about me? The difference now is if you lose your parent, you go back to work after a week. Now what's happening is we're all going through it at the same time and it's impacting customers. The other thing that's happening is now that sales is virtual and it doesn't matter what's happening in your state, it's still gonna be virtual because customers figured out we can do it that way. And the last thing you're gonna do is let some salesperson in your office who's been who knows where. So customers are virtual. And well, a client of mine summed it up. She said, what was tolerable in person is intolerable on a Zoom call. So motive becomes even more obvious because when I walk into a sales call, hey, Richard, hey, how you doing? Let's sit down. Like there's all these social niceties. Now they're not there. So we have this chorus of customers that has had this existential crisis. They're wondering, why am I here and who is actually helping me? They're not going to tolerate these self-serving behaviors. They're not going to tolerate these endless PowerPoints. And so we have those two forces coming together with companies saying close it and customers saying, hey, are you actually here to help me? And so what I think is happening, I've observed it with our customers, is transactional sales is dead. It was on the way out anyway. It has now been a stranglehold with COVID. And so these sales teams who can actually rise above that immediacy of pressure to close things and focus on customers are going to emerge victorious. And the ones who are all graspy, it's not going to work out well. That's what I'm seeing. That's, that's fascinating. Um, and, and what is your definition of a transactional sale, right? Like, so if I'm a sales rep at Yelp, right, mm -hmm. which, you know, I think is what I often think of as transactional. What does transactional mean in your mind? Or is it not the actual transaction, it's the transaction of information and the way that information is shared is what you're talking about. Yeah, it's interesting because words only mean what we think they mean. And um, to many people, transactional means it's a one-time thing. What I mean by transactional is it's non-differentiated and the customer doesn't place any value on the seller and the seller's organization. They just want the stuff. So if I just want the thing, I'm going to price shop. A noble purpose sale could be like, I'd give an example, CrossFit, you know, only buy it once, but sure hang with them for a long time. And so um, what happens is 
a noble purpose sale tends to be a higher ticket dollar item and a longer sales cycle and a longer customer retention, but not necessarily. Does that make sense? Yeah, I was just curious because we, to, to your point of words have meanings, you know, you can say the word transactional sale and you mean it one way. Right. And I think oftentimes in sales, it's, oh, transactional SMB mid-market. Yeah. And I just want to make sure we were talking about a little bit of a differentiation yeah. there um, so that we could understand it a little deeper. So, and so what I mean that. by transactional sales is something that the buyer looks at and says, I could get this anywhere. The seller and the company add no value. I'd get this anywhere. How are you, how are you balancing the work life stuff, right? Like, you know, selling, you know, raising a family, um, you know, being a partner with your husband, you know, it sounds like business-wise mm -hmm. as well as, you know, in a family way. Kids, I assume you have, I don't I know do. if you have kids or not. And but, thankfully, um, they're yeah. already through school or right now. I would. Uh, Scott, so Scott and I are in the throes of it. They're both, we both have boys and they're both 10 and 12. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're. A to we're a different totally world, different so. world. Well, I think one of the things that I'm seeing with these, that, that sales executives have to understand, it's kind of an interesting dynamic because when you look at most chief revenue officers, they tend to be my age. Um, so their kids are older. They also um, tend to be male. And so if you look at chief revenue officers, what they have to understand is their sales team has like two kids at the kitchen table going, I hate this, I don't wanna do it. And they're like trying to make sales calls and do all this other stuff. And so that's the thing. If you have a transactional relationship with your people where nobody cares about anything but the money, if there's no cause bigger than the money, no enthusiasm what you're doing, you're not just competing um, with your competition, you're com as a company, you're competing with your employees' kids and their spouse and all the other demands that they have on them right now. So, I mean, you got to rally them around something. You guys know if you've got kids, I'm surprised some of them haven't jumped in the room right now. <laughs> oh, I, I already had stepped away for one moment. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, yeah, <laughs> we're, in the we're in the middle of it right now. Oh, yeah. It's funny. I've I, uh, I, I won't name them because they're actually good friends. There's a company I know that ran a study that says, you know, the whole work from home environment, you know, they're seeing an 84% lift in productivity from their mm -hmm. team. And I said, well, hold on. Did you measure how many hours their day lasts? Yeah. They're like, what do you mean? Yeah. Like, well, yeah, but if they're working from seven at night after, or, you know, eight after the kids go down to 1130, they're not being more productive. <laughs> They're being right. less productive, right? right? And they were like, oh, yeah, we never thought about it that way. So it, it is, I, I really appreciate you saying that because for all the C-level executives and VPs who um, who don't have kids, like, this is a problem. Like, it's, yeah, a, you know, it's a shit show, right? Like, it, it is a complete shit show. They don't, a lot of the executives don't have kids, or if they do have kids, they did not do the heavy lifting on those children. And they have no envisioning of what it would be like my sister has a reluctant uh, student in her home right now. And for her to have to sit with him and do high school, which he hated anyway, now on a Zoom call, it suddenly didn't get better. It got a hell of a lot of work. At 7.45 in the morning. My, my fifth grader starts yeah. school at 7.45 in the morning on Zoom. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm not working at 7.45 in the morning on Zoom. I got to get up and deal with this now? Well, I'm getting the other end of these complaints. One of my daughters 
is a first year teacher. Great to be a first year teacher. So she's 22 years old teaching 11th grade. <laughs> and it's actually her second year. Her first year was last year when they shut down. Now she's come back this year. And I, and, and I realize we're kind of getting off topic, but in many ways we're actually not. Because what is keeping those teachers engaged is a sense of purpose, that they care deeply about those kids. And, and this, this idea, and it's the same thing that's keeping you engaged with 745 in the morning, kid, is when, we, when we're in the service of a cause bigger than ourselves, we will rally. We will rally and we will do it. And companies have to understand that. If they can't in some way show their people that somebody's counting on you, what we're doing here makes a difference, they're, they're going to lose hearts and minds as this thing wears on, and it is going to wear on. Yeah. You're muted, Richard. I know. It's good. I, I'm a, part of the show Scott where knows this. Yeah, yeah, Scott knows this, that I'm a huge Springsteen fan, and you know, Springsteen said, but look, if you're going to be a rock star, rock star 101 is you must hate school. You must hate school. So I keep <laughs> thinking that there are going to be a plethora of musicians coming out of this thing where – because, and, and you know, it's, it's silly and it's funny, but it's also like, all right, you know, there's going to be a whole level of entrepreneurship in a yeah. year or two that's all started from this, which is, I wish we didn't have to go through it to get there, but, um, right. but it's, certainly, it's certainly there. Well, you know, I often write about school and the parallels between school and sales, and there is one. In schools, we have made a grievous error. We have made test scores the end game. And when test tours became the end game and teachers became, you know, just rinse and repeat, it's not love of learning, it's not making a difference to students. All we're going to do is measure you on those test scores. And test scores are actually a lagging indicator. They don't tell you how well the student is going to do in life. They don't tell you how well this, the student thinks that learning is fun. They don't tell you anything but this one moment in time. And so if you want to create a dispirited group of kids and a dispirited group of teachers, say that test scores is the only game. We already know that's happened. Kind of, it's kind of like making uh, your metrics the only game in town. On that's right. Player, right? Yeah. Same thing happens in companies, the exact same thing. If you want to create a dispirited workforce, then make your KPIs be the only thing anybody talks about, the only thing you look at, and you will have a dispirited workforce at best. At worst, you will have a Wells Fargo. You know, you know, your daughter may have a future in sales considering that you're, you are her mother. And I have found that teachers who have left the classroom and moved over to selling are Amazing. some of the best. Some of the best. I totally agree. I sold, yeah. I sold in education. I sold all that software. I, 100% agree. I have had a lot of that. success hiring teachers yep. who, for one reason or another, said no moss to being in the classroom and have come on over. So, you know, if she doesn't, if, if her first two years are too much, no one would fault her for jumping ship and trying a <laughs> profession. So. <laughs> well, my older daughter actually um, was an education major, decided to go into advertising after a little bit in that got a master's degree in industrial psychology and she is my business partner. Well, I'm Jeez. trying to connect all those dots. I know. I, need a flow I have two chart. daughters and they're both really smart and the oldest one works with me. 
<laughs> Those are the dots. So we're, not, we're not calling out favorites. We're not calling out favorites but just so in case they listen. What I'm trying to tell you, Richard, is that Riley, your oldest son, is going to be working for you in about 10 years. That's what's going to happen. I think I'm going to be working for him in about 10 years. Yeah, well, we're, good. we're fast approaching that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, we have to uh, kind of get to the end of the show here and wrap up a little bit, Lisa. This has been a lot of fun. How can we help you? Is there anything that we can you know, support of yours or any causes or things that you're working on that you want to kind of shout out? Um, so um, we could get all political now and, and maybe I will, um, but I'll do that in one second. Um, the thing that I, that business wise, we have a new edition of Selling with Noble Purpose out. And if you just go to our website, backslash Selling with Noble Purpose, just Google Selling with Noble Purpose, you'll find us. And we've got um, some free tools where you can do an assessment of your sales team and whatnot. Um, so that would be really helpful from a business perspective. From a personal perspective, I guess the thing that I would ask people to do is one of the big elements of selling with noble purpose is the ability to see the other. The ability to see the other is something more than a means to achieve your end. And so a lot of the unrest that we have right now, and I'll give you an example, Black Lives Matter, it's saying, see me, see me, tell me I matter, tell me I'm something. And so I guess on a personal perspective is that I would ask people to think about how can I see the other? And, and where's a place that I could go? Maybe it's your church, maybe it's Black Lives Matter, maybe it's something else, but like, where's a place that I could go that would help me really see these other human beings that I share the planet with and help me connect with them and have more empathy with them? Because it doesn't happen naturally. It's not gonna happen naturally in this environment. We have to, we have to step into something bigger than ourselves or we're doomed. Well, I personally really appreciate you saying that um you're probably unaware and that's okay but um last week i wrote four words on a linkedin post and all i wrote was stop killing black people that's mm -hmm. all i wrote and uh there's i don't know 7200 likes on it right now and 1200 comments and the comments are full of support but also full of hate and a lot of vile, filthy remarks and just ignorance and things like that. Um, and I got my first ever death threat last week. And uh, I, one of the things that I ended up doing was the next day I made a little video and I sort of asked for help and support from the greater sales and leadership community for mm -hmm. some of us to be a little bit more outspoken and talk about this stuff and take it a step farther and take some action and start holding some of these people accountable who are online on a professional site spouting some of this stuff and maybe we should do something about that um and so i i this is like four or five days ago now so i appreciate and, and commend you for um speaking your truth and being outspoken about this uh, means a lot to me so thank you for that well, I, I would be honest and I would say, in my case at least, uh, better late than never. 
this is something that I've known since I was a child, something I was raised with, and something I didn't always uh, speak up about because I was in business. I didn't want to make people angry. I didn't want to get political. And now, if you can't, if you can't look at the black community and have some empathy for how they are hurting now, if you had two children and one of them was being hurt and bullied, you wouldn't say, all lives matter. You would rally your damn family around the kid that was being hurt. That's what you would do. Yeah. And Amen. It's, it's something that I've been thinking a lot about. And I, and I think it, with all the psychological study we've done for our work and our books, the ability to see the other as something besides a means to your own end game is transformative at every level. Yeah. Well, this has been a really fun conversation and I am grateful. It got serious at the end. I'm grateful that we decided to get serious and go deep. At we, the could end. Go, we could go another hour on stuff. Yeah. We didn't even, I mean, we didn't even talk about, you know, what's it like to be a woman in sales and starting a business and, you know, which I know would be a whole other session. Well, you know? we'll have to, we'll have to have her back then. Absolutely. Sure. So. so thank you so I'll much. One thing that's great about being a woman in sales. If you've ever had a woman in your life tell you something and say, Oh yeah, that couple's getting divorced. Oh yeah, that's happening. And you go, how do you know these things? Women's intuition is real. My wife. It's, it's cats. Scott knows my wife. Like she walks in the room and feels the vibe. She knows it. So it I'm, is real. And so being yeah. a woman in sales and sales training is great. <laughs> yeah. We need to have a part two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa, thank you so much. This has been really clear your calendar, clear your calendar for tomorrow, Lisa. We need to do part two, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. And thanks to uh, lead 411 and gong.io for sponsoring the Serpent Sales podcast. And we'll see you all next time. Bye everybody.